0: chapter 1 of the suffragette the history of the women's militant suffrage movement by e sylvia pankhurst this librivox recording is in the public domain please note that footnotes will be read at the end of each chapter 1 early days from the formation of the women's social and political union to the summer of 1905 from her girlhood my mother the founder of the women's social and political union had been inspired by stories of the early reform movements and even before this at an age when most children have scarcely learned their alphabet her father robert Goulden of manchester set her to read his newspaper to him at breakfast and thus awakened her lasting interest in politics the Franco-German War was still a much-discussed event when Robert Golden took his thirteen-year-old daughter to school in Paris, placing her at the Ecole Normale, where she became the room companion of Henri Rochefort's daughter, Noémie. Noémie Rochefort told her little English schoolfellow much of her own father's adventurous career, and Emmeline Golden soon became an ardent and enthusiastic Republican she was now delighted to discover that she had been born on the anniversary of the destruction of the bastille and was proud to tell her friend that her own grandmother had been an earnest politician and one of the earliest members of the anti-corn law league and that her grandfather had narrowly escaped death upon the field of peterloo even before her school-days in paris she had been taken by her mother to a woman's suffrage meeting addressed by miss lydia becker on returning home to england emmeline Golden settled down at seventeen years of age to help her mother in the care of her eight younger brothers and sisters and when she was twenty-one she married dr richard marsden pankhurst who was many years older than herself and had long been well known as a public man dr pankhurst had been one of the founders of the pioneer manchester women's suffrage committee and one of its most active workers in the early days he had drafted the original woman's enfranchisement bill then called the women's disabilities removal bill to give votes to women on the same terms as men which had first been introduced by mr jacob bright in eighteen seventy and had then passed its second reading in the house of commons by a majority of thirty-three with lord coleridge dr pankhurst had acted as counsel for the women who had claimed to be put upon the parliamentary register in the case of charlton v slings in eighteen sixty eight he was also at the time one of the most prominent members of the married women's property committee and had drafted the bill to give married women the absolute right to their own property and to sue and be sued in the courts of law which was soon to be placed as an act upon the statute-book two years before this great act became law mrs pankhurst was elected to the married women's property committee and at the same time she became a member of the manchester women's suffrage committee in eighteen eighty nine my parents helped to form the women's franchise league my sister christabel and i then nine and seven years old already took a lively interest in all the proceedings and tried as hard as we could to make ourselves useful writing out notices in big uncertain letters and distributing leaflets to the guests at a three days conference held in our own home about this time we two children had begun to attend women's suffrage and other public meetings and these we reported in a little manuscript magazine which we both wrote and illustrated when some few years afterwards owing chiefly to lack of funds and the ill-health of its most prominent workers the women's franchise league was discontinued dr and mrs pankhurst returned to manchester and worked mainly for general questions of social reform years before my mother had joined the women's liberal federation in the hope that it would work to remove both the political and economic grievances of women and to raise the status of women generally but finding that the federation was being used merely to forward the interests of the liberal party of which women could not be members and in the formation of whose programme they were allowed no voice she had resigned her membership in eighteen ninety four she and dr pankhurst joined the independent labour party one of the decisive reasons for this step being that unlike the liberal and conservative parties the independent labour party admitted men and women to membership on equal terms in the same year mrs pankhurst was elected to the charlton board of guardians and remained a member of that body for four years this experience taught her much of the pressing needs of the poor and of the bitter hardships especially of the women's lives after dr pankhurst's death in eighteen ninety eight mrs pankhurst retired from the board of guardians and became a registrar of births and deaths for the next few years my mother took no active part in politics except as a member of the manchester school board Note one but in nineteen hundred one my sister christabel became greatly interested in the suffrage propaganda organized by miss esther roper miss eva gore booth and mrs sarah dickinson amongst the women textile workers she was also elected to the manchester women's suffrage committee of which mrs roper was secretary christabel soon struck out a new line for herself impressed by the growing strength of the labor movement she began to see the necessity of converting to the question of woman's suffrage the various trade union organizations which were upon the eve of becoming a concrete force in politics she therefore made it her business to address as many of the trade unions as were willing to receive her we were all much interested in christabel's work and my mother's enthusiasm was quickly reawakened the experiences of her later years had brought her a keener insight into the results of the political disabilities of women against which she had rebelled as a high-spirited girl and she now realized more strongly than ever before the urgent and immediate need for the enfranchisement of her sex she became filled with the consciousness that her duty lay in forcing this one question into the forefront of practical politics even if in so doing she should find it necessary to give up all her other work the woman's suffrage cause and the various ways in which to further its interests were now constantly present in all our minds a glance at the early history of the movement to say nothing of personal experience was enough to show that the liberal and conservative parties had no intention of taking the question up and after mature consideration my mother at last decided that a separate woman's organization must be formed therefore on october tenth nineteen hundred three she invited a number of women to meet at our home sixty two nelson street manchester and the women's social and political union was formed almost all the women who were present on that original occasion were working women members of the labor movement but it was decided from the first that the union should be entirely independent of class and party the phrase votes for women was now for the first time in the history of the movement adopted as a watchword by the new union the propaganda work was at first mainly carried on amongst the women workers of lancashire and yorkshire and in the spring of nineteen hundred four as a result of the women's social and political unions activities the annual conference of the independent labour party instructed its administrative council to prepare a bill for the enfranchisement of women to be laid before parliament in the forthcoming session this resolution though carried by an overwhelming majority had been bitterly opposed by a minority of the conference who asserted that the labour party should not concern itself with a partial measure of enfranchisement but should work directly to secure universal adult suffrage for both men and women therefore before preparing any special measure the national administrative council of the independent labour party went very carefully into the whole question they were advised by mr care hardy and others who understood parliamentary procedure that a measure for universal adult suffrage which would not only bring about most sweeping changes but would open countless avenues for discussion and consequent obstruction could never hope to be carried through parliament except by the responsible government of the day it was therefore useless for the labour representatives to attempt to introduce such a measure in addition to this it was pointed out that whilst a large majority of the members of the house of commons had already pledged themselves to support an equal bill to give votes to women on the same terms as men no substantial measure of parliamentary support had as yet been obtained for adult suffrage even if confined to men taking into consideration all the present state of both public and parliamentary feeling and with a million more women than men in the british isles there was absolutely no chance of carrying into law any proposal to give a vote to every grown man and woman in the country having thus arrived at the conclusion that an adult suffrage measure was out of the question the council now carefully inquired into the various classes of women who were possessed of the qualifications which would have entitled them to vote had they been men On its being ascertained that the majority would be householders whose names were already upon the register of municipal voters, the following circular was addressed to all the independent Labour Party branches. We address to your branch a very urgent request to ascertain from your local voting register the following particulars. 1. The total number of electors in the ward. 2. The total number of women voters. 3. The number of women voters of the working classes. 4. The Number of Voters Not of the Working Classes It is impossible to lay down a strict definition of the term working classes, but for this purpose it will be sufficient to regard as working-class women those who work for wages, who are domestically employed, or who are supported by the earnings of wage-earning children. It was not unnatural that the majority of the branches failed to comply with a request which obviously entailed a very extensive work, Nevertheless, returns were sent in from between 40 and 50 different towns and districts in various parts of the country, and these showed the following results. Note 2. Total of electors on the municipal register, 423,321. Total of women voters, 59,920. Total of working women voters as defined above, 49,410. Total of non-working women voters, 10,510. Percentage of working women voters, 82.45. On receiving these figures, the National Council of the Independent Labour Party decided to adopt the original Women's Enfranchisement Bill, which passed its second reading in 1870. The text of the bill was as follows in all acts relating to the qualifications and registration of voters or persons entitled or claiming to be registered and to vote in the election of members of parliament wherever words occur which import the masculine gender the same shall be held to include women for all purposes connected with and having reference to the right to be registered as voters and to vote in such election any law or usage to the contrary notwithstanding meanwhile we of the women's social and political union were eagerly looking forward to the new session of parliament it is indeed wonderful in the midst of the great women's movement that is present with us to-day to look back upon its small beginnings in that dreary and dismal time not yet six years ago it seemed then well-nigh impossible to rouse the london women from their apathy upon this question for the old suffrage workers had lost heart and energy in the long struggle and those who had joined them in recent days saw no prospect that votes for women would ever come to pass i myself was then a student at the royal college of art south kensington but i decided to absent myself in order to help my mother who had come down from manchester to lobby as it is called on those few important days the house met on tuesday february thirteenth and during the eight days which intervened before the result of the private member's ballot was made known we spent the whole of our time in the stranger's lobby striving to induce every member who had pledged himself to support women's suffrage to agree that his chance in the ballot should be given to a women's suffrage bill it was my first experience of lobbying i knew we had an uphill task before us but i had no conception of how hard and discouraging it was to be Members of Parliament all told us that they had pledged themselves to do something for their constituents, or had some other measure in which they were interested, or had not been in Parliament long and preferred to wait until they had more experience before they would care to ballot for a bill at all. Oh, yes, they were in favour of women's suffrage. They believed that ladies ought to have votes, but they really could not give their places in the ballot for the question. It was always anything but that and during the whole of the week we spent in the lobby we did not succeed in adding one single promise to that which we had originally received from mr keir hardy on the fateful wednesday on which the result was declared my mother and i were the only women in the lobby we sat there on the shiny black leather seats in the circular hall waiting for the result and at last we saw with relief mr keir hardy's picturesque figure coming hurrying towards us from the inner lobby he was so kind and helpful the only kind and helpful person in the whole of parliament it seemed at once he told us that his name had not been drawn in the ballot and explained that only the first twelve or at most fourteen places that had been drawn could be of any use to the members who had secured them and that owing to the limited number of days upon which private members bills could be discussed only the first three or four had even a moderately good chance of becoming law Note three our next move must therefore be to get in touch with the successful fourteen members and to endeavour to persuade one of them to devote his place in the ballot to a woman's suffrage bill after considerable trouble we finally got into communication with all of them and they all said no with the exception of mr bamford slack who held the fourteenth place and who at last agreed to introduce our bill largely because his wife was a suffragist and helped us to urge our cause of course the fourteenth place was not by any means a good one and the bill was set down as the second order of the day for friday may twelfth in the meantime we drafted a petition in support of it and set ourselves to procure signatures one sunday evening i went with a bundle of petition forms to a meeting addressed by mr g k chesterton at morris hall clapham the lecturer's remarks were devoted to a eulogy of the french revolution from which he asserted all ideas of popular representation had sprung an opening which i seized was given for a question on the subject of votes for women in relation to the government of our colonies whilst the audience were asking questions and offering criticisms mr chesterton was busily making sketches of us all but though i saw myself being added to the picture gallery in replying to the questions raised in the debate afterwards he did not answer my point afterwards however he came up and told me that he had forgotten to deal with it and then gave me an explanation i had not asked are you in favour of votes for women i had assumed that he was and he replied on the same assumption and afterwards voluntarily signed his name to my petition it was with surprise not untempered with amusement therefore that i afterwards found mr chesterton coming forward as an active anti-suffragist but his attitude seemed to me to be an augury of our speedy success for he delights to champion unpopular causes and to oppose himself to the overwhelming and inevitable march of coming events many other women's societies suffrage organized petitions at this time for the fact of having a bill before the house of commons for the first time for eight years had sent a thrill of new life through them all the result of our united efforts was that when the twelfth of may came round the strangers lobby was densely crowded and many of the women had to be drafted on to the terrace or to stand in the various passages leading from the lobby as well as the members of the various suffrage societies women of all classes from the richest to the poorest were represented in the gathering and among the rest was a large contingent of women co-operators accompanied by mrs nelly alma martel of australia who had helped to win votes for women there and had afterwards been run as a candidate for the commonwealth parliament having polled more than twenty thousand votes many of the women were quite pathetically confident that we were going to get women's suffrage then and there but those of us who knew rather more both of the stubborn character of our opponents and the antiquated parliamentary procedure which renders it possible for a handful of obstructionists to block any private member's measure unless the government will come to its aid knew that the women's enfranchisement bill stood in a very precarious position the question which occupied the first place on the day for which our own measure had been set down was a simple practically non-contentious little bill the object of which was to provide that carts travelling along the public roads by night should carry a light behind as well as before we had spent weeks in bringing all possible pressure to bear both upon the promoters of the roadway lighting bill that they might withdraw their measure and upon the conservative government in the hope that they would give special facilities for the further discussion of the bill in both directions we met with a refusal but we would not give up hope finally on the very day of the second reading when the anti-suffragists as we had already foreseen would be the case were amusing themselves by spinning out the debate on the roadway lighting bill by pointless jokes and contemptible absurdities mrs pankhurst sent a message to mr balfour telling him that if facilities for the passing into law of the women's enfranchisement bill were not granted the women's social and political union would work actively against the government at the next general election this message produced no apparent effect and from the meeting of the house at twelve o'clock until half-past four in the afternoon the discussion upon the roadway lighting bill continued then only half an hour remained for our bill "'and this amid irresponsible laughter was talked out. "'The news of what was being done had gradually filtered into the lobby, "'and the attitude of the assembled women had changed "'from one of pleased expectancy to anger and dismay. "'A feeling of tense excitement seemed to run through the gathering. "'Some of the faces were flushed and others white, "'whilst many had tears in their eyes. "'Especially amongst the working women co-operators feeling was running high.' these women were eagerly looking forward to the time when they would be able to take their part side by side with men in settling the terrible social problems with which they were met on every hand they bitterly resented the way in which they were being insulted by members of the house of commons they wanted to do something to express their feelings of disapproval and when the order for strangers to leave the house was given many of them seemed disinclined to go then some of the women who had been listening to the debate from behind the grill in the ladies gallery came down into the lobby and told us that a strange man in the adjoining gallery had suddenly sprung up to protest against the way in which our question was being talked out he had been thrown out of the house by the police and was now at the entrance to the lobby this piece of news created a diversion the women flocked out to thank him it was not until afterwards that we or they learned that the man was one of the unemployed bootmakers who had marched up from leicester and that he had not made his protest in our favour but because he saw that the house was wasting hour after hour in laughing and joking though the government had assured him that it had no time to attend to the grievances of starving men my mother now suggested that a meeting of protest should be held outside and mrs wolstenholme elmy the oldest worker in the suffrage movement present began to speak the women crowded round to listen but almost at once the police ordered us away and began striding in and out amongst us and pushing us apart we thereupon moved to the foot of the richard i statue which stands just outside the door of the house of lords but again the police intervened till at last after much argument the inspector of police offered to take us to a place where a meeting might be held mrs pankhurst then called upon mrs martell as an australian woman voter to lead us and joined by a single member of parliament mr keir hardy we marched with the police to broad sanctuary close to the gates of westminster abbey here we adopted a resolution condemning the procedure of the house of commons which had made it possible for a small minority of opponents to prevent a vote being taken upon the woman's enfranchisement bill and calling upon the government to rescue it now and carry it into law the meeting then dispersed vowing political vengeance upon the government if this should not be done it will be remembered that during the summer of nineteen hundred five it was evident to the most casual observer that the resignation of the conservative government could not be long delayed mr chamberlain's tariff reform proposals were causing dissent in the cabinet and the resignation of several ministers had already taken place The South African war had brought a measure of overwhelmingly enthusiastic support to the conservative government, but, as almost always happens in such cases, a reaction had set in, now that the war taxes had to be met. At the same time, there was grave depression in the cotton trade, and consequent distress in the industrial districts. In order to cope with the trouble, Mr. Walter Long, on behalf of the government, had introduced a bill to provide relief work for the unemployed. This had met with serious opposition from his own party, and it had been subsequently announced that no further time could be found for the discussion of the measure. At this point the dispute which had arisen between the Scottish Free Church and the United Free Church of Scotland had become acute, and on June 7th Mr. Balfour had introduced the Scottish Churches Bill, which was hurried through its various stages and finally passed on July 26th it was urged that the new government ought not to have brought forward this new measure whilst the unemployed workmen bill to which they were already committed had been set aside for lack of time but mr balfour excused himself by protesting that he had been obliged to carry the scottish churches bill because a crisis had arisen the unemployed and their leaders now stated that if mr balfour needed a crisis to make him act they would certainly provide him with a crisis an uprising on a small scale accordingly took place in manchester in the course of which the unemployed in spite of police prohibition persisted in holding a meeting in albert square afterwards they marched in an irregular mass along market street spreading all over the roadway and obstructing the traffic a struggle with the police ensued during which four men were arrested the question of the manchester riot as it was called was at once raised by mr keir hardy as a matter of urgency in the house of commons and as a result it was hastily carried through its remaining stages though in a modified form we of the women's social and political union had been much interested by the situation that had arisen both in regard to the unemployed and the scottish churches and we determined to profit by the example of those who by determined and decisive action had secured a certain measure of consideration for their claims it was only a question now of how much longer militant tactics were to be delayed and as to how they were to be inaugurated a favourable opportunity for their dramatic commencement had not yet presented itself but there was plenty of necessary propaganda work for the women's social and political union to do one sunday evening in june mrs pankhurst had been invited to speak on women's suffrage to a meeting held under the auspices of the oldham independent labour party during the proceedings glees were sung by a choir of men and women cotton operatives and one of the members of the choir was annie kenney who was afterwards to take so prominent a part in the votes for women movement annie kenney was deeply impressed by all that mrs pankhurst had to say and shortly afterwards when my sister christabel also lectured in oldham she asked to be introduced to her christabel then asked her to pay a visit to our home in manchester and the friendship which was to have such far-reaching results began annie kenney was born at lee's near oldham she was the child of working-class parents and to supplement her father's earnings her mother in addition to all her household cares had been obliged to go out to work in a cotton mill most of her married life annie kenney herself had early become a wage-earner for at ten years of age she secured an engagement as a half-timer in one of the oldham cotton factories then wearing her heavy steel-tipped clogs her fair hair hanging down her back in a long plait, covered by a shawl she had gone into the hot crowded spinning-mill and working amid the noisy jarring of the machinery as a little tenter at the disposal of three older women she had learnt to fit into place the big bobbins covered with fleecy strands of soft raw cotton and to piece these same fleecy strands when they broke as they did so often whilst they were being spun out thinner and stronger once as she seized the broken thread in her tiny fingers one of them was caught somehow and torn off by the whirling bobbins whilst she was still a half-timer she worked alternately one week from six o'clock in the morning till midday in the mill and during the afternoon at the elementary school and the next week she spent the morning at school and four hours of the afternoon in the mill at thirteen her school days had ceased and she had become a full-timer working in the mill from six o'clock in the morning till six at night this premature launching forth into the world of wage-earners had left its mark upon annie kenney her features had been sharpened by it and her eager face that flushed so easily was far more deeply lined than are the faces of girls whose childhood has been prolonged those wide wide eyes of hers so wonderfully blue though at rare moments they could dance and sparkle like a fountain in the sunshine were more often filled with pain anxiety and foreboding or with a longing restless searching unsatisfied and far away a member of a very large family annie had four sisters nellie kitty Jenny, and jessie who came nearest her in age and had been her companions in the cotton mill in spite of the fact that they were constantly obliged to rise at four or five in the morning in order to reach the factory gates at six o'clock and on returning home were obliged first to help to do the housework and prepare the evening meal for the rest of the family these girls were all determined to continue their education and they regularly attended the oldham night-schools at the time when we first met annie nelly and kitty the two eldest of the sisters had both worked their way out of the cotton mill nelly had become a shop assistant and had soon proved herself so able that she had been put in charge of two of her employer's shops whilst kitty had passed the necessary examinations and had obtained a post as an elementary school teacher and jenny though still in the mill was studying with the same object jessie who was but sixteen was learning typewriting and shorthand annie who was then twenty-five was unlike her sisters in many ways she frequently said that she was not so clever as her sisters but when any decisive step was to be taken or any question of principle to be decided it was always annie who took the lead there is not much that is beautiful in a small lancashire manufacturing town but what little there was annie kenney contrived to make the most of She was a regular attendant at the church and delighted in the beauty of the music. The Whitsuntide processions, in which she walked with the other Sunday school children, all in their white dresses, being vivid memories with her still. She early commenced to carry on a literary campaign amongst her workmates, and having come across a copy of the penny weekly paper The Clarion, in which Robert Blatchford was publishing a series of articles on his favourite books, contrived to procure some of the works which were there mentioned and introduce them to her companions on the few holidays which fall to the lot of the cotton worker or when the mills were stopped owing to bad trade annie Kenny and her sisters and some of their favorite workmates would put together a simple luncheon and set off roaming for miles across the moors the grass and the trees might be blackened with the smoke of the factories the sight of whose tall chimneys the girls could never leave behind but blighted as it was this was the only country that annie had ever known and it was all beautiful to her when they had walked till they were tired the girls would lie down on the grass and then they would read to each other in turn and annie would talk to them about the flowers and the sky just as she was intensely alive to all that was beautiful so too annie kenny realized keenly the ugly and sordid side of life when speaking of her early days to a conference of women in germany in nineteen hundred eight she said i grew up in the midst of women and girls in the works and i saw the hard lives of the women and children about me i noticed the great difference made in the treatment of men and women in the factory differences in conditions differences in wages and differences in status i realized this difference not in the factory alone but in the home i saw men women boys and girls all working hard during the day in the same hot stifling factories Then, when work was over, I noticed that it was the mothers who hurried home, who fetched the children that had been put out to nurse, prepared the tea for the husband, did the cleaning, baking, washing, sewing, and nursing. I noticed that when the husband came home, his day's work was over. He took his tea, and then went to join his friends in the club or in the public house, or on the cricket or football field, and I used to ask myself why this was so. Why was the mother the drudge of the family, and not the father's companion and equal? from the first we found annie ready with excellent ideas for spreading our propaganda in lancashire every little town and village has its wakes week the wakes being a sort of fair at which there are merry-go-rounds coconut shies and numberless booths and stalls where human and animal monstrosities are shown and all kinds of things are sold in every separate town or village the wakes is held at a different date so that within a radius of a few miles one or other of these fairs is going on all through the summer and autumn annie told us that on the sunday before the wakes almost all the inhabitants of the place go down to the wakes ground and walk amongst the booths and that salvation army and other preachers temperance orators the vendors of quack medicines and others seize this opportunity of addressing the crowds she suggested that we should follow their example we readily agreed, and all through that summer and autumn we held these meetings, going from Stalybridge to Royton, Moseley, Oldham, Lees, where Annie lived, and to a dozen other towns. [Footnotes] Note one When the school boards were abolished, mrs Pankhurst became the Trades Council representative on the Education Committee. Note two In Booth's classic book, Life and Labour in London the result of a canvas of the then 186,982 women occupiers shows that of that number, 94,940 were wage earners who were divided into the following categories charwomen, office keepers, laundresses, 30,334, dressmakers and milliners, 14,361, shirt and blouse makers, seamstresses, 6,525 waitresses matrons etc 5595 tailresses 4443 lodging and coffee-house keepers 4226 medical women nurses midwives 3971 teachers 2198 on the basis of booth's figures miss clara collett the government's senior inspector for women's industries writing in the journal of the royal statistical society for september nineteen hundred eight estimated that the women occupiers of london might be divided as follows occupied women who work out fifty one per cent housewives without servants thirty eight per cent housewives with one servant five per cent housewives with two or more servants six per cent Note three. Even a first place is useless, if the government and the speaker are hostile. End of chapter one.